We know what you were thinking during that time. Did they forget me? Did they let me alone? Will they be back one day? Will the global in-show ever come back? Nay, 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 we didn't forget you. No worries, adventurers and explorers of international affairs. It's with a certain emotion that I can say we are back. Back on track, track to the road, road to the foreign affairs. More than a year now since we didn't do an episode, but we are back for a new season. With new team, with new guests, but still the same energy to try to understand the world around us. Welcome, bienvenue, welcome and bienvenido, Degamer Matt. You are listening to Kai 103 Radio, and this show is made in partnership with Utlik Politica Fringen. New Year's is here, and our new season of the Global Inn is the perfect cure to face the darkness of the winter. But let me tell you why we are here. We are here to try to understand together the complexity of our world, a goal that seems simple in a world full of complexity. That is the objective we have fixed for ourselves. We don't have the pretension to know geopolitics better than you, listener. We just try to bring together some keys to understand it. But the most important, we want to bring hopes. Because even if there is darkness in the news, hope is what we have to stand for. You know, it's really easy now when we see the current news to have some worry feeling about our future. But there is still some hope, and you have to believe in this hope. I'm not a utopian guy or something like that. I just don't believe in the statement that you have to be disconnected news to be happy. No, you don't have to. Stay aware, keep calm, turn on the radio, listen to Global In Show, and then you will be happy. My name is Hugo, and my French accent and I will be supported with an outstanding team that I will present to you. Welcome to the Global In. Today I'm joined by Sultan and Benetta. We're going to talk about the rise of the far-right populism in Europe. We'll be joined by the PhD student at the Department of Political Science at the University of Gothenburg, specialized in political psychology, radical right, political behavior, public opinion, identity politics. He has a lot of area of interest. Luca Verstigen will be our guest today. Before we welcome our guest, Sultan, can you give us an overview of the situation of the far-right in Europe? Yes, and uh, far-right parties are on rise across Europe. It's a familiar theme and one that progressive politicians and liberal media often rehears. Worries about cost of living and energy crisis, the war in Ukraine, immigration and gun crime, a hot-button issue in many European countries, may help explain the rise of this phenomenon. The existence of far-right political views and political movements is nothing new in European political environment. Throughout the 20th century, three historical waves of right-wing extremism in Europe, neo-fascism between 1945-55, right-wing populism between 1955-1980, as well as the radical right between 1980-2000. to Post-World War II, neo-fascism was rampant and very much a remnant of fascist groupings that collaborated with the fascist regimes who lost the war. Because of a general distaste of right for right-wing extremist political views that reigned uh, in the meantime, these groupings achieved very little real power and influence within national politics. But during the mid 2020 it was springtime for far-right parties in Europe. Even the radical ones did well. In the 2014 election, Hungarian Jobbik received 20.2% of the votes in the parliamentary election. 
two years earlier, Ukrainian uh, Svoboda had received 10% of the water's support and Greek Nazi party Golden Dawn has received 7% in the parliamentary elections. It was not the first time that right-wing parties uh, had gained representatives in the parliament. But what distinguished these three parties was that they were far more radical than many others in Europe. All three had some form of paramilitary militia attached to them. To varying degrees, they advocated active acts of violence to achieve their goals. Unlike many other extreme right-wing small sects, despite the violent appearance, they had received considerable parliamentary support in their respective. The existence of far-right political views and political movements is nothing new in European political environment. Today, there are number of member states in the EU, EU where right-wing radical parties have gained real influence over government power, either by the fact that they have formed a government all on their own, or by that they have entered coalition governments with conservatives or right-wing populist parties, or because they have acted as a support party for a conservative government. Hungary, Poland, Austria, Italy, Denmark and Sweden are examples of such countries. Thank you, Sultan, for this explanation. Uh, today, to talk about the rise of the far right in Europe, we are really pleased to welcome the PhD student at the Department of Political Science at the University of Gothenburg, researching, among other things, polarization and support for radical right parties. Luca Verstigen, hello and welcome to the Global Inn. Hi, good to be here. When we talk about the, the far right, uh, we, we used to, it's used to qualify a broad spectrum as neo-fascist, neo-Nazi movements, traditionalist and fundamentalist groups, nationalist and populist parties, but also racist and ethno-prunarist thoughts. But when we talk about far-right political parties in Europe, what are the things they have in common and what things differ from a country to another? Right, I mean, we're currently talking a lot about all these different parties, right? And as you say, there are like very different terms, alt-right, far-right, radical-right, extreme-right, and so on. I think what we as researchers are most interested right now is the radical right. So parties that combine three things, populism, authoritarianism, and nativism. And populism is generally just this distinction between there are some people, hardworking, ordinary people, as you can see them on the streets, and they're like very different from the self-interested, corrupt, lazy political elites uh, that do government, right? That's the first thing. And then you have authoritarianism, which is like this belief that there's a very clearly structured society. There are some groups that are just more valuable than others. And this is then really kind of qualified in the third thing, which is nativism, right? There are people who are born in this country and they are generally those that are considered the highest in the order. And that is the like the radical right that we are currently talking about, populism, authoritarianism, and nativism. You talk about radical right, and we also use the term of far right, extreme right. Uh, is there any semantical difference between those words? I mean, often they're quite used interchangeably. I think like there's one important difference between the extreme right and the radical right. So all the parties that we're currently talking about, like the Sweden Democrats um, or Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, is radical right. And extreme right really means that you don't just try to change the system, the landscape as it is right now in uh, the governmental process, but that you really just get rid of the country, the, the, the government at uh, in, in of it itself. 
there is a, a perception that new voters for the far right or people who, who have felt let down in a way by the traditional left and right parties. Uh, you, you wrote a scientific article called The Exclude Ordinary, a theory of populist radical right voters' position in society, uh, where you attempt to show how populist radical right voters see themselves uh, in the society. Far right voters, are, are they people who have been disappointed by the traditional parties or there is other reasons? I think we as you know researchers and like pundits like people observing the radical right they ha we have just so many explanations for why they they gain power right and like we tend to ascribe all these ideas to them that they're like economically left behind and that they're disappointed and marginalized uh some even say like the angry white man and so on and I think what 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 we can say is that these are people who are tend to be dissatisfied with the current government and really try to have a radical change. So wh wh why do you think there is this right of uh, the populist uh, radical right in, in Europe now? Wh what are the main reasons? So I think there are like generally two main explanations, one being this economic explanation that, you know, after the economic crisis in 2009, particularly, you see this rise in radical right because people just feel that the economy is going downhill. So that's the first. And the second then is um, migration, right? True racism. People just don't like migrants, especially after the so-called 2015 um, refugee crisis, that people just try to defend what they have. And then right after that, like people were starting integrating these two explanations saying, well, like perhaps you fear about your job because of migrants coming in. Um, and then there are like explanations developed on that. Basically, people feel to 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 lose status, lose recognition, and so on. Yeah, that, that's in a way like the easy uh, easy way to think. Like it's due to the migrant if there is crisis now. So if we vote for a radical right party, thing will be better. Exactly, and w w if we I think we, if we know one thing, then it's not like easy explanations would ever win, right? So for example, if you just say, well, these are the poor people. You run statistical models where you see like, okay, as soon as we control for people's education, for example, their actual income doesn't matter so much. So maybe it's more about education, whether you're like socialized in a way that you're open towards uh, toward, towards different views, people from other countries, uh, different cultures and so on that actually um, kind of attenuates this tendency to support the radical right. And now we are moving on with Beneta. So, first question that I'm going to ask is, the last elections in France have seen more than 13 million people voting for the far-right candidate Marie Le Pen against uh, Macron. And most of those people that voted for Le Pen didn't consider themselves to be racist or like normal voters of the far-right, but uh, they still voted for her. So, related to this data, do you think there has been like a normalization of the far-right parties in politics that people nowadays consider to be regular? And if so, why do you think this normalization has happened? Yeah, I, th I think we got to... Uh, so that's a great question, first of all. I think we got to be very careful here in like what we actually consider normal and what is kind of weird, right? And we as researchers often or like as observers kind of try to understand the radical right as if it was like a minority minority movement that does something really, really weird. And... Just to be clear, like obviously, like the vote for a radical right party also means that you're supporting a racist party. So that is weird. But I think we should kind of get rid of the idea that these are like a small group of 
strange people, right? There are like many, many people, as you said, in France, but also just in Italy and Sweden and uh, Germany and so on, but also in the US that really support this party, right? And that think that that is right or that th this movement needs to become stronger. So I think it's like important to kind of say like the actual vote for this party is really, really strange and highly problematic. But I think we as researchers and observers kind of like need to put more effort into why do people support this party and also what are the different motivations as I said like economic issues cultural issues but also just dissatisfaction with the political system and related to that then what role do you think the economic issues and the cultural ambience play in the citizens voting for these parties uh, so you're asking a political psychologist and I will always say uh, that People just have their very noisy and very subjective experiences of like how the economy is performing, right? And there are some models by economists who kind of like really show that actually the economy or like economic decline, job insecurity and so on can predict radical right support to some extent, but that there is always something that is actually just subjectively blurred where people think or feel or anticipate that they will lose their job or that the economy is going to getting worse without actually having objective reasons to think that way. And so still talking about perceptions then, uh, do you think we could argue that there has been a change in perception also from the perspective of political leaders who are more willing today to like have alliances basically with far right politics, politicians sorry, of the scene, whereas in the past they used to be a more ostracized persona right so like initially when this issue came up like 20 years again increasingly more politicians were more like you know we are just like excluding them from any political collaboration we don't have coalitions with them we don't talk to them even and this is still like a present kind of solution in some countries but other countries actually move towards or like mainstream parties move towards these radical right parties and we can see that like this moving towards a radical right party doesn't really help mitigating this movement. Instead, they will actually win even more, right? Um, and you can see that in several countries uh, that conservative mainstream parties, like the conservatives just tried to kind of reduce the momentum of a radical right party by just moving towards them, becoming more conservative, more radical in their migration policies, for example, but that never helped them. Um, but indeed, you're right, like they are actually like increasingly becoming more open towards them just because they re like mainstream politicians are realizing that they need support from more from more voters. So, for example, in Sweden, it would be very hard for the moderate party to like have any position if they don't have the support from the Sweden Democrats. Do you think that the excuse of like, oh, yeah, we are aligning with the extremist party because in that case we can mitigate its effect or anything has been more of a scapegoat, like an electoral device more than anything? Like from your political uh, scientist perspective, is an alliance, could actually an alliance be effective in mitigating these effects or in theory or not? So um, I think that is a very, very good question. And as far as I know, it is actually not helpful to like start coalizing or collaborating with them. I think what we can see though is as soon as radical right parties get in power, they often destroy a lot, um, as we can see like in the policies they favor in Sweden right now, for example. But then often radical right supporters actually realize that after three or four years, 
actually they don't are so much better, right? They are first of all they are also politi- what they consider political elites, but then also they don't change the problems, right? So if we had like easy problems to economic questions, but also like cultural questions, questions of cultural integration, mainstream politicians would probably do them. But apparently they're not so easy and radical right voters tend to realize that after a few years, which is also an explanation why Trump had to leave the Oval Office again. And that was actually in anticipation of the next question, which is, uh, do you think that the American situation of the 2016 elections has favored the rise of the far right policies in Europe now? So usually like Europe tends to do apparently what uh, the US shows us. Uh, So Trump uh, were winning the Oval Office and then there were increasingly more radical right politicians, right? That is kind of like the idea. But obviously, there are radical right politicians in Europe for the last 20 years and they're becoming increasingly stronger. But by now, actually, there's like a small, yeah, I should say dip, actually. They are gaining a losing favor again. Um, But in terms of polarization in general, if you like move towards uh, not just the radical right, but how we kind of like communicate in society and how we are... uh, living together as, as a society, we are actually learning a lot of the the polarization that is currently going on in the US. And since you mentioned that many of the far right parties are losing favor, uh, and in the meantime, we know that we know, we have observed that the far right parties that has just risen to power in Italy has traced back its heritage to the fascist era. How do you think this historical moment uh, compares to the rise of the power parties of the past? Yeah, so uh, as I said at the beginning, like like fascist party are what you would consider extreme right parties, right? Um, but it's always obviously because there's racism involved in both radical and extreme right parties. There's this question like, how racist are they actually? And like you can see in like basically every radical right party that there are politicians that either previously collaborated or were part of like fascist movements or parties. And interestingly, you can see that kind of parties develop over time and Germany and in Sweden, they were actually becoming less extreme over time. Right. So Germ- uh, uh, Sweden's uh, Sweden Democrats actually trace back to really fascist roots. Uh, in the past, but then they had to what um, some politicians call de-debolisation. So like kind of like they cleaned themselves of um, the most extreme parties in order to become uh, electable. And in other countries, they actually become more extreme. So for example, in Germany, for very good reasons, it w- there was a particular s- strong stigma around support for any radical or extreme right parties. And so it very uh, took a long time for, for Germany, for the radical right party to make ground. But since 2013, since they actually established themselves as a radical right party, we can see that they become extremely, increasingly more extreme. Mm. And so it is uh, in, in Italy, for example. Uh, but then you can also see this counter movement that uh, parties are actually becoming less extreme. So, for example, Marine Le Pen uh, in France, uh, but also here in Sweden. Mm. And that that is also interesting because one thing that I like to argue personally when I speak about Italian politics is that since sensationalization is of the figure or the political figure plays a big part in how we vote as a population. And I think it's also a big part of why Giorgio Meloni has become such an important figure just because she has based a lot of her campaign on like, I'm a woman, I am a mother, 
So she has constituted herself as a persona first, even before actually talking about her policies. So from like a PhD perspective, PhD student perspective, actually, what role do you think that sensationalization, I can't even say the word, plays into the constitution of such politics? Well, very basically, uh, political science argues that there's always a demand and supply side to understanding any electoral behavior, right? So there are voters who demand something and there are politicians who offer something. And here we can see like, well, let's say radical right voters demanded more strict migration policies, for example, or economic um, reforms. But then you can also see that there are politicians who really kind of like capitalize on people's emotions, people's anger, people's fear, perhaps even. Uh, they organize their their rhetoric, their communication around that. But then they also just really have this appeal, right? You mentioned Meloni, but I would say uh, Trump is a very good example. It's Trump is a very easy person to follow to. He is entertaining as far as long as you are not the person who is kind of like discriminated by his rhetoric. Likewise, Boris Johnson in the UK, very entertaining person. Uh, and there are a few others, right? So radical right politicians are kind of described as often very charismatic. They have like some appeal that is more interesting, but also just easier to follow than like a boring mainstream politician. That's interesting. You finished second at the Utopia Science Slam in Ljubljana, Slovenia, last November, where you did a presentation um, about the emotion and the way it affects people from a political perspective. Am I right? Um, and you talk about the affective polarization. Um, can you tell us more about uh, this concept? Yeah, so affective polarization is what I just meant, right? So we have this kind of rise in radical right parties. But what we are also observing is like this tendency to increasingly love people who share your political attitudes, like people who you agree with, you're basically like very friendly towards. And then people who don't agree with you, you become very, very skeptical. And this is like very big con consequences, right? So research from the US, for example, shows that you're uh, less willing to move toward, towards a uh, like to a, sit a city if you know that most people there are voting for the other party, uh, or you're less likely to, to date a person if you know that that person uh, votes for a different party. So, and we see the same in, in Europe, like we become really, really, really um, skeptical about people who disagree with our views and therefore we kind of like think that everything they say do and feel is actually just wrong but then I have a question because uh, one reply that I like I have many many friends who are like from the far left and whenever uh, I try to argue with them about everything, their, their standard reply is always like, oh yeah, but you can't argue about this because it's basic human rights, which, yeah, fair, but also how do you think dialogue can be built on top of that if that is a barrier, the reply that you always get? Yeah, and as like many researchers are currently wrapping their head around how that works because like moral psychology shows that like, as you said, like, by now, we don't just say like people get things wrong, but we also have like perceptional biases that we really think this person is just wrong, right? This person, she or they, uh, he may have their values, but they just get it wrong. They they don't see the point. They don't feel we dehumanize people. So we think they are like less human uh, if they have this view. And 
Therefore, we just don't talk to them. And I think that is very important. And we try to kind of like come up with interventions that help bridge divides. Yeah, that's the that's still in, in the same um, emotion like area, like how and, and why emotion like play a role in politics and especially in the rise of, of the far right or the radical right, because that's that's how you call it. So I'll say radical right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, there are like many different views on that, right? There are some um, researchers who say like people have just, they make their informed choices, they have a certain ideology and they vote based on that. And then there are others who basically say people are random noise, right? They don't have time for politics. They don't read newspapers. They have kids at home that they need to take care of. So they just do whatever they feel like based on a tweet they read. And this is like a very emotional thing, right? Your emotions actually are like very, very rapid things, right? You can be like very happy at some point, then you get an email, you're like very sad in the next second. So, and this is like where obviously when this comes right before you make a political statement or you go to the ballot and vote, this can really very quickly affect politici political outcomes. And politicians know that and they try to kind of like move emotions in a certain direction. From a more uh, personal perspective, what, what do you think about this, this rise of, uh, of radical right in, in Europe now? Uh, so, like, personally, I find it, first of all, obviously interesting, uh, and I have to because I spend loads of time on that. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> right? Uh, but then it's, uh, I think, troubling, right? It's concerning because it's just, like, threatens democracy, it threatens uh, minorities, uh, groups that are historically and still disadvantaged. Um, and this is, like, the political side, and then I, th I still th also think, like, we and I also count myself towards a more left-leaning camp we need to still try to communicate with each other because as it is goes, it's going right now, it's really problematic. We have like big real challenges like climate change or social inequalities. And currently we're just, you know, like doing everyday business, but we're not like uh, approaching the proper problems. This is K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. We talk much about uh, right-wing here, but what do you think about left people's role in driving polarization? Yeah, I think that is a very good question. So uh, let me be clear that like the problem that we have is that currently we just don't talk to each other. And I think often like people who are more in the left-leaning camp kind to really think that they own truth and to just like accept one certain way of handling things. And I think that is a problem because it obviously kind of like puts pressure on people that apparently for some reason already feel pressured. Um, but on the other hand, we should also be very wary of the fact that radical right politicians often represent societal majorities, right? They overrepresent men, white people, um, in certain uh, countries, also older people. Uh, and these are not the people who are discriminated against factually, right? So I think like there is subjective truth where you just like perceive things and we all perceive reality in a, like a very biased and blurry way. But then there is also things that you can objectively measure. And here you can well just say, apparently some men feel subjectively discriminated against, but objectively we know that they are still and historically, the people who kind of like are considered the mainstream, the default group uh, who own the power in most societies. I mean, even if you go to jail because you are like 
constituting, I don't know, fascist or Nazi apology, that's still like your responsibility. Like it's you choosing to say things that you know are wrong. And if you're a Nazi, Nazi denier, that's a whole other problem. <laughs> that's not like freedom of speech. Right. So I think I think like and I think that is also like I initially I said like there's this distinction. We can condemn a radical right vote because that is racist and we can still try to understand and even sympathize with some of the motivations that a radical right voter may have. They are not only racist and they're not only stupid. Some of it is. But then some of that is just like things you got to listen to, right? Like people are concerned about uh, retirement poverty, which is a huge problem in many Western European countries right now. So you can't understand that, but you still can condemn the racist vote that they make at the end. But then I also think like you can as a left supporter be considerate about your own role and like how you think like you own truth and actually like grant other people some space. For example, in Germany, we have this question about like, how do you use gender equal language? And it's right to be more inclusive because it's still uh, other gender that are not men that are discriminated against in most societies. But still, we can say, well, there may be one, more than one solution, the solution that I have right now that we can give space to, right? Yes. What I was uh, meant to say is that, like, if you give example from the Soviet empire and uh, from the Stalin times, they had this uh, far left ideas also, and they did everything. They meant everything to do for social justice, for, you know, and as as, as soon as you say something against their, uh, uh, against their rule, then you were a bourgeoisie, member of bourgeoisie, and you were the enemy of the people, and you were sent to jail. I don't say that it's the same, like, uh, nobody from left I think sent somebody to jail as as soon as uh, as long as I have heard in Europe uh, nowadays but there is a trend that uh, they try to cancel everything that isn't in the line of what they think and do you think that it can like make people afraid to have you know like free and uh, you know that people uh, say their op uh, opinions uh, directly Uh, and not being afraid that oh uh, like thinking hundred times before they say something oh I maybe can be cancelled for it and then I can't say anything after it because all society now hates me. I I think what we should also mention here is that people who are particularly likely to support radical right parties right um, so men for example but also white people and older people they have historical power right and. It's not such a long time ago that they actually now got to learn that there are people who say something different and that counts too, right? So often they understand themselves as being canceled for something where just somebody disagrees with them, but they're not used to that. They are not used to like men, I guess, still have to learn that like sometimes women say something that they just don't like. And this is not something that women would cancel me, but I just got to bear that there's a different opinion, right? This is not yet cancelling. And again, I would be very, very careful with these comparisons to like any 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 post-Soviet past or something, because here you can say like there are like v great videos of people insulting our politicians online uh, or uh, on public events. And you can just let it happen. Right. You don't like it. And these people can be prosecuted when they consult mm. people. But nobody is put into jail because they would disagree with somebody. I don't see that. I have not heard that. And then radical right conspiracy theorists will say, yeah, because it's covered like by the by the media and so on. But so, believe me, I, 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 
I I see people who like really well insult people like a couple of times and they're still there. It seems to be fine. I think in Western democracies specifically, it's less about learning how to express your opinion and more about learning that it there are different realities that you may not belong to, that people belong to and have an experience of. So it's like whenever, like in Italy, we have big problems with uh, sexism and uh, like homophobia and everything and any time a man or a straight person maybe basically like expresses an opinion such as i don't know it used to be so much simpler when we didn't have these people in society or something it's not that they were not there before or that women were not there before they just did not take part in the conversation that was happening but yeah it's not about being stifled or being silenced or anything it's literally just like the word opening up and the conversation opening up And we, we can also add that, like, I mean, there's always like this objective truth and there's a subjective truth, right? And I don't think like, like all of us as human beings, we just like see what we want to see. We hear what we want to see and we talk about that, right? But like, then you can objectively see that just, it's still white people in power. It's still men who are in power. And it's still like these groups that are considered the mainstream and all the other kind of groups deviate from that. So there is like men and then there's the others compared to men and there you can just see still like our current life as society as it is we are still kind of like in this frame there are certain majorities that currently complain about like being discriminated against that are objectively in power thank you luca for being our guest today uh, last question do you have some recommendation about articles documentary for those who want to know more about this topic um Do I have recommendations? I think like there, there are some good documentaries. What I really like is if you want to be entertained, uh, there are very good political podcasts, for example, by The Guardian or The New York Times Daily. Um, but then I would also just say go to Google Scholar and uh, search for uh, populist radical right and then just read and start reading wherever you're interested in because as far as like the more we know, the better citizens I guess we can become. Thank you very much, Luca Verstegging, for being our guest today. Uh, we wish you a really good luck for uh, your following PhD. Thank you. This is K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. We now move on to Beta. Beta, what did we talk about today? What were the main points? And if you can do a kind of overview. So to sum up everything that we've gone through, we have established like what is exactly far right parties, uh, what they constitute, what their policies are and everything, which is a subject that I think tends to be controversial. So it's nice to have a theoretical opinion, like overview of it. We then went on to talk about their normalization and their presence in politics nowadays and also what has been the evolution of this role both in America and in uh, the in Europe. Uh, we had some interesting opinions about the rise of fascists, especially in Italy, which I was really, really interested in, and the German situation, and also some really, really interesting uh, overview of uh, how entertainment and emotions play a part in this politics and in this kind of... Um, political systems and we finished off with a nice discussion about the role of dialogue i'd say and the role of uh, relationships and 
how they can also help us basically build another society and what they can do in the future and how the past ties into it with uh, some interesting questions from Sultan. And yeah, to finish off, remember the recommendations that our guest gave us about other sources in which to find information about this, because I think that many, many of us could use a lot more education on the topic since these are the political times that we live in. And that was it, Hugo. Thank you, Benetta. The Global Lean is over for today. Thank you to Luga Verstigen for being our guest today. Thank you to Benetta and Sultan for hosting this show with me. And thank you also to Amanda who helped us to prepare this program. See you next month with a new topic. In the meantime, you're listening K103 Radio and this program was in collaboration with Utlik Poestika Fringing. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Au revoir. This is K103 Gothenburg Student Radio.